This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Honan, providing a complete range of insurance, risk, and financial solutions. Bundy's called me up, told me to take a look, but stay stubborn as bulls and talk their own book. Get the money, get the money, get, get the money. Well, Delian Enchev, thanks very much for coming on Talk Your Book. Really excited to sit down with you today. I thought we could start with you telling us a little bit about Aorus Investment Management and how you guys look to invest for those that haven't heard the, uh, heard the story before. Yeah, sure thing, Chris. And thanks for having me on the show as well. For those that aren't familiar with Aorus, we're a global long-only equity manager. Um, and what we want to invest in is companies that are leaders in their markets, uh, that are growing and profitable and have a long uh, track record, and where we have confidence about their ability to continue growing into the future without having to make any heroic assumptions. Uh, and there are probably two things that we do differently to how we get there. The first is we only invest in 10 to 15 stocks. So let's just be highly selective about not just the quality, but also the valuation of the businesses that we own. Uh, and secondly, we only do one thing and do one thing well. So we've got a single fund, a single product. We don't time the market or flex cash to reflect our market views. We just focus on finding good businesses. And what stock did you want to talk about today? Well, one of those businesses that we own is uh, LVMH. Uh, that stands for Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy, which are just some of the brands that it owns. Uh, and the ticker there is MC on the Paris Stock Exchange. And it just owns such a huge number of luxury brands now, probably more than a lot of people would realise. Maybe talk us through some of the other brands in their portfolio that, that they own. Yeah, sure thing, Chris. So as you say, LVMH is the global leader in luxury goods. Um, and they actually own 75 brands under the group. Uh, and a real asset to the firm is that those brands operate with a high degree of autonomy. Um, so almost completely independently, and that lets them be a lot more agile and entrepreneurial, uh, which, as you can imagine, in a time of change like the last 18 months, uh, has let them take a lot, a lot of market share from their competitors uh, and pivot to the changing circumstances. Uh, so some of what they own, um, they report under five segments. Um, so I'll just give you an example of some of the brands in each of those. Um, so the largest business is called Fashion and Leather Goods. Uh, um, and that includes the Louis Vuitton brand, which, funnily enough, is celebrating its 200th birthday this year. Um, so it just gives you an appreciation for the heritage and the story behind these brands that they're selling to customers. Uh, and other brands include um, Christian Dior, uh, Fendi, uh, Marc Jacobs. Uh, and that's about half of the firm's sales and two-thirds of its profits. Uh, the second segment is called Wines and Spirits. And that sells predominantly cognac and champagnes. And for both of those, it's the world leader. Uh, in cognac, it has 52% global market share, so by far uh, the market leader. And a really unique attribute of those businesses for both champagne and cognac is that both alcohols can only be produced with grapes grown in a certain region of France. Um, so again, there's a strong benefit to being an incumbent uh, and there's you know, severe supply constraints to becoming a producer of those alcohols. And some of the brands are uh, Hennessy and Cognac uh, in Champagnes. They own basically all the global Champagnes you would have heard of. So, you know, Moet, uh, Chandon, Berthe Clicquot, Dom Perignon, uh, they're by far the market leader. Uh, and then they have a segment called Perfumes and Cosmetics, um, which, uh, you know, uh, that's what they sell uh, under all their brands. But Christian Dior is one of the market leaders in that space. 
Uh, they sell watches and jewellery uh, where they own Tag Heuer, uh, Zenith, Hublot, uh, in jewelry, though, in Bulgari, and they recently bought Tiffany, which I'm sure we'll talk to later. And then finally, they have a segment that um, is called Selective Retailing, and they own under that Sephora, uh, the world's largest beauty retailer, uh, and also uh, DFS, the duty free store chain. So, one thing that will probably come out of that is it's a very diverse business, uh, lots of different segments that sell lots of different products. And that's a real asset to the firm when. Uh, you know, there's challenges in any one area of the business. Uh, you know, there's good buoyancy in other parts. Uh, and a good example of that is, you know, at least travel and retail disruptions in the last 18 months, uh, which they've offset in other parts of their business. And it strikes me with a lot of those brands, they are, you know, hundreds of years old. And, and usually luxury brands are hundreds of year, years old. I can't think of many, if any, luxury brands that get created mm-hmm. In the last 10 years, is that one of the things that you feel just give a business like this a huge economic moat? It's a great observation. So like I said, Louis Vuitton's celebrating its 200th year anniversary and that business was founded making suitcases for the French royal family. And you just, you cannot replicate that sort of heritage and history, uh, which they reflect in all the products they produce today. Uh, and it, it, it is, as you said, very difficult to start a new luxury brands business. In fact, there are very few... Is Hublot one? Would Hublot be a relatively new brand that's classed as luxury or is, is yeah, that, that been a long time? That's been well? around a long time, yeah. Has it? Okay. Yeah. So there, there are very few luxury brands um, that you'd recognise that have been founded the last few decades. Um, so that, that is an asset to the firm. But I think LVMH have done a good job at the same time as straddling that heritage with remaining contemporary and relevant. You don't want to remain uh, sort of too staid and stuck in the same, selling the same products every year. And I think there's a lot of innovation um, and craftsmanship behind the company that have allowed them to balance between sustaining that heritage and creating new products that excite their customers. And in terms of geographies, where are their biggest markets? It's a very globally diversified business. Um, So roughly a quarter of their sales are in the US, a quarter in Europe, uh, a third in Asia, and the rest in uh, Latin America and Southeast Asia. One thing that might be front of mind today is uh, China um, and the Chinese consumer. And if you look at both sales to mainland China as well as the travelling Chinese, it's about a third of their overall sales. And so I'm interested in the Chinese market. I feel like there's two potential schools of thought mm. on luxury goods in China. The first school of thought could well be, well, Z is looking to crack down, President Z is looking to crack down on, on inequality and he showed that by coming down really hard on some of the tech giants recently and, and some of the education providers. Mm. Uh, and luxury goods are a way where rich people demonstrate the inequality that exists in their society. But then another school of thought would be that for China to be able to thrive and, and survive on its own, it needs its consumers need to spend much more than they do today playing into to the thematic of luxury goods. Which of those schools of thought appeal most to you or do you feel there's something else going on altogether? I guess as a starting point, taking a step back, Chris, we like to own businesses where they're not reliant on external factors to grow and that includes you know, regulation and, and government influence. And for that reason, we don't own businesses in emerging markets, but we do own companies like LVMH that have a presence in the growth of emerging markets. Um, so I think that's, that's definitely a fine distinction for us. And LVMH itself has a very long history and deep experience in China. Uh, so it was actually the first luxury brand to set up a store in China in 1992. And uh, Hennessy Cognac has actually been distributed in China going back to 1849. Mm. Um, 
And, you know, in, in that time, there have been, uh, you know, regulatory turbulences. Uh, in fact, you might recall about five or six years ago when she came into power, uh, he's had this sort of political corruption campaign and, um, you know, campaigned against the gifting of luxury goods and expensive alcohols, which did affect the growth of the luxury companies for a year or two, uh, but they've rebounded strongly since. And, you know, we, we like to think about the business in the long term. You know, will we'll some of these... T- temporary changes affect the long-term value of the business? Uh, we, we don't think so. Um, and I think there's a lot more breadth to LVMH's growth than just China. You know, it's been an important contributor to their growth. Um, but uh, in the last few results they reported, their US business grew basically at the same rate as their Asian business. Um, and like I said, it's about a third of their sales. But uh, going back 20, 30 years, the Japanese consumer was about 40% of LVMH's sales. You know, that was the rising superpower. So we have confidence that no matter what the next rising power is or whatever shifts there might be in the Chinese consumer, they'll find somewhere else to pick up the slack. And even within China, it's not just about selling to the ultra-wealthy. You know, there's a there's a growing cohort of middle, middle-class consumers that will aspire to LVMH's brands. Um, so it's not just about conspicuous consumption from the ultra-wealthy, which I understand is the focus of this investigation. And maybe give us a bit of an outline of, of the numbers, their market cap, uh, earnings, some of their revenue growth or anything else you, you're really looking at that excites you at the minute. Oh, yeah, sure, Chris. So the market cap is about 320 billion euro. Uh, it's actually the largest company in Europe. Um, and uh, half the shares are owned by the Arnaud family, uh, which makes Bernard Arnaud, uh, I think he's toe-to-toe with Jeff Bezos being the richest man in the world. Um, and it does about 62 billion in euro sales uh, for this year. Um, uh, and on that, uh, 15 billion of operating profit. So a pretty good operating margin of 25%. And if I contextualize that to its history, it's delivered about 8, 9% organic revenue growth over the last 10, 15 years. Um, so that's without the influence of any acquisitions. Acquisitions have added another about 2% a year to its growth. Um, and LVMH has a pretty good track record of buying businesses and nurturing them through product development, building out their store network and marketing the brands better. Uh, Bulgaria is actually a great example of that. They've quadrupled the profits since they bought that business. Um, and then their margins are very resilient um, at about you know, in, the, in the 20s. And management have a really interesting philosophy where in the good times, they reinvest any excess profits into the future growth of the business. Um, so they you know, put the pedal on the accelerator for product development, um, you know, invest more in their craftsmen, uh, invest more in marketing their products and building out their stores. And uh, when times are tougher, like in the last 18 months, they can pull back on some of that discretionary spending to maintain their profitability. So in the last 15 years, they've never made a loss. The profits have been very resilient uh, and they've grown in every year but two, which was the GFC, where they declined just a little bit. Uh, and in 2020, where they were affected by store closures, but remained very profitable. And they had an, in, I mean, their revenue growth numbers for the first half just look out of this world because you were comparing <laughs> them to the year before. Have you just looked through that? And are you comparing, were you comparing the first half numbers to 2019, or how do you handle that when there's such an abnormal event like COVID thrown in the picture? Yeah, I feel like with what we've seen the last 18 months with a V shape, not just in the uh, the share market, but also in the economics of many businesses, it's fairer to compare to a more normal time, which is 2019. Uh, but to the company's credit, that's actually how they present their results and their materials. Uh, and so in the first half of the year, the group 
grew by 11% versus 2019 levels, which might seem like a pretty decent number, but it's still below that run rate of sort of 8 9% a year that it would have done over the two years. Um, and we think it's still operating at less than its full potential. Um, you know, some of its stores are still closed. People still can't travel. Um, you know, that perfumes and cosmetics business, when people are stuck at home, they won't spend as much on uh, in their wines and spirits. Bars and restaurants are still closed. Uh, so we think there's a lot of potential for the business to keep growing off these levels. But another feature of the results in the first half was the profitability of the business was just out of this world. So they delivered margins much higher than any time in the company's history. Uh, and we think some of that will come out as they reinvest in the business, as I described. A lot uh, of those brands went online for the first time, didn't they, through that COVID period? Traditionally, a lot of them you couldn't buy online. So did that help that, that profitability? Uh, it might have helped a bit. Uh, management's actually said that e-commerce uh, is economically on par with uh, its in-store sales. You know, they invest a lot in their stores and the store experience, but mm. the customer comes in and you know, it's greeted with champagne and probably ends up buying a bit more than they would online. Um, but I think online was about 9% of the firm's sales and most of that comes from Sephora, um, which is very sort of digital savvy. I think in general, luxury just doesn't lend itself to an e-commerce experience. Like I said, you want to walk in the store and really feel the products and look at the products. Um, and it's just not the same online, uh, but they've done a good job with most of their major brands and putting them online and building out their presence in the last 18 months. And so there's a school of thought that luxury's boomed because people haven't been able to spend money on a lot of services or, or travel recently. Hmm. Given the exposure that LVMH have to some businesses in airports or perhaps uh, other businesses that will do well when people do travel and can go in store. Mm. Do you think they think they'll go better when the world eventually opens up, or do you think they'll lose out because consumers will be spending more on on travel and services than they they have in the last eighteen months? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we think they can keep growing off these levels, and it's it's what I mentioned before about this natural sort of ballast in the firm. So, uh, you know, some businesses performed very well the last eighteen months. Uh, for example, cognac, people buying a lot of cognac uh, at home uh, and uh, fashion and other goods. As you said, people reinvesting some of those savings uh, from not being able to travel into consumer purchases. But uh, at the same time, as the economy reopens, travel will reopen. And, you know, a big part of luxury sales historically have been from travellers. Uh, you know, a Chinese traveller, think in Paris, uh, wants to sample all the local products that they couldn't find in, in mainland China. Um, so as, as travel reopens, that'll benefit the firm. And then a lot of their stores are still closed. And I think of their store in Sydney and, and Melbourne are uh, closed at the moment. Uh, and, and I think Europe is still feeling the effects of, uh, of COVID in a similar way that we are. So that'll, that'll reopen. Um, and then wines and spirits, as I mentioned, uh, you know, about half that business sells to pubs, bars and restaurants. Um, so as that resumes, entertainment resumes, uh, we think that'll recover as well. But like I said, it's it's a company that's been through decades and decades, many of its brands of different turbulences, um, world wars and inflationary periods and all crises. And we're confident that no matter what the next 18, 24 months look like, uh, you know, they'll keep growing and becoming more relevant to their consumers and taking market share off their smaller peers. And what's next for them? Maybe what does their balance sheet look like? And where could you see them focusing their their act? acquisition intentions going forward? Uh, so it's, it's a firm that's typically prioritised organic growth over acquisitions. 
Um, and, you know, that's both their major star brands like Louis Vuitton uh, just keep gaining relevance and market share. Uh, you know, the, the strong get, getting stronger, uh, which is what we've seen in the last 18 months, certainly. Uh, and then there's good balance between that and also nurturing their smaller brands and, and the growth of the smaller brands. Um, but as, as you said, Chris, uh, you know, they've got a, got a good track record of acquiring businesses and making them more valuable. Um, and uh, in January of this year, they closed the acquisition of Tiffany. Uh, so that was a $16 billion deal. And that made them the largest luxury jeweler in the world. Um, and we're quite excited with what they can do with that business. Again, just um, you know, refocusing its product development, uh, accelerating its marketing plans uh, and rolling out its store network, particularly in China. Um, so that's probably the focus uh, for the business in the near term. Um, but it's a company that looks at a lot of different things and is very selective on what it buys, a bit like us at Aorus. Uh, so management say they've looked at thousands of different deals, including companies like Ferrari and Burberry. Mm. Uh, but what they've actually bought is, is very few, only what makes sense, uh, businesses they can actually add, add value to. Uh, and the balance sheet's in very good shape. You know, we like to own companies that are conservatively financed and don't have to... Uh, you know, restructuring in a time of crisis because of their balance sheets. Um, so at the moment, their profit's about 15 billion, like I mentioned, and they've got 14 billion euro of net debt. So just under one times. Uh, and incredibly, that debt that they raised for the Tiffany deal is at basically zero interest rates. So I think they actually reported a negative interest expense in the first half. Um, so they're, they're in good shape. I did see that when they bought that Tiffany acquisition. Their debt, the debt they got for that, was it a negative coupon? that they got? It was the most incredible debt deal, wasn't it? It's absurd. So the all-in rate at the time they closed the deal was 0.3%. And some of those bonds were negative. But they're all floating bonds. And interest rates have just kept decreasing in that time frame. So at the moment, I think basically all of the debt they raised is negative yielding. There is, I mean... There is something very wrong in the world where you get paid to take on debt. But that's a whole other show. Delin, that was a great presentation, mate. Uh, Really appreciate your time. And uh, you presented the LVMH story beautifully. So thanks very much. Uh, Great chatting with you, Chris. Pleasure. This episode of Talk Your Book was proudly brought to you by Honan, who go beyond a transactional insurance broker to deliver better outcomes for their clients. If you're enjoying Talk Your Book, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest. Nothing you hear today should be considered investment advice. Please do your own research and seek out your own financial advisor before committing any capital to these markets.